we all, and some of us may have been alive, but we all know that on December 8th, 1941, the President of the United States, who was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, said the following words. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Now, this speech was made on the heels of a surprise attack uh, at Pearl Harbor by the Japanese forces. The attack by Japan in the speech of Roosevelt were the catalyst that forced the United States into World War II. There have been other infamous dates in human history. By the way, the word infamous means uh, to have a very bad reputation. And among those dates are October 29th, 1929. That was the day the stock market crashed and led to the Great Depression. On November 22nd, 1963, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas. On April 4th, 1968, was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee. January 22nd, 1973, was the day the United States Supreme Court handed down its decision on Roe v. Wade. That decision effectively legalized the murder of millions of unborn babies. Then, of course, there's September 11th, 2001, the day radical Islamic terrorists declared war on the United States by flying occupied passenger jets into the World Trade Centers. Now, these dates, along with many others, are indelibly imprinted on the American psyche. But this morning, our text tells us about the events of one infamous night that took place 2,000 years ago. That was the night in which Jesus was arrested just prior to his crucifixion. It's a night that will live in infamy. It was a night filled with treachery, hatred, brutality, and it stands out as one of the most infamous dates in human history. The events of that infamous night have something to teach us today. They have something to say about our Savior, and they have something to say about the human condition. The question is, and I'm sure most of us probably have in one way or another, have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had someone who you trusted attack you, desert you, deceive you? Maybe a family member, a spouse, a friend, a trusted co-worker. It's absolutely devastating when it happens. It's like a knife in the back. And then 
salt poured in that wound to think that this person was on your side. But the thing is, none of us have been betrayed unto death. In our text for this morning, we see a betrayal at its worst. Judas will betray Jesus in such a cold-hearted manner. And then you see the rest of the disciples desert him to where Jesus is left all alone. He entered the Garden of Gethsemane with 11 disciples, but he leaves the garden with only soldiers who have taken him captive. In his death, unlike that of any other, Christ made an atonement for many. He was not only separated from his disciples, but at that time during the crucifixion, he was separated from his father. And so he not only died a horrible death by crucifixion, but he had the guilt of sin laid upon him, though he himself was without sin. With that as our introduction, if you would please turn to our text this morning. It's found in Mark chapter 14, and we are going to be looking at verses 41 through 52, which means we are going to go back a couple verses from last week. Starting with verse 41. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now if you remember, we just saw a Passover celebration like no other. 
while presiding over the celebration of the most significant Jewish feast, Jesus boldly declared that he was the Passover lamb who was soon to die for his people to save them from their sins. Jesus also stated that the bread which he broke was his body. Jesus even declared that the wine in the cup was my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many. These words were shocking enough. But right in the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus declared that one of his own, Judas Iscariot, had betrayed him. And that act would soon lead to the Lord's arrest. Although these dramatic events fulfilled a number of Old Testament prophecies, Jesus himself had predicted these things for some time. The grim reality of this prophecy was finally setting in. The divinely appointed hour everyone dreaded had finally come. It was now time for Jesus to lay down his life and to drink the cup of wrath so that we may be forgiven of our sins. And so we are in the final portion of this gospel. It's the last week of Jesus' messianic ministry. The pace of Mark's narrative now picks up greatly as it races ahead toward the inevitable conclusion. The Lord's arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. It's now Thursday evening of Holy Week. And by this time, the Sanhedrin had already put into action their plan to have Jesus arrested under the cover of darkness. They would do it to where they were out of sight of the people. Now that one of Jesus' own, Judas, had come to the Sanhedrin with an offer to betray Jesus in exchange for a few pieces of silver, the Sanhedrin were now indeed ready to arrest Jesus as soon as he could be located. And once arrested, Jesus Jesus would quickly be placed on trial and then uh, summarily executed well before anyone could be wise to this plan. But you see, this plan was all going according to plan. Judas and the Sanhedrin were plotting against him. Judas had, uh, Jesus had rented the upper room and celebrated his final meal, a meal which included Judas, the betrayer. During this last meal, Jesus completely transformed this traditional Jewish Passover celebration, giving an an entirely new theological meaning. And doing so, he instituted the uniquely Christian ordinance of the Lord's Supper. On this night, everything changed. Nothing would be the same. The Passover celebration unfolded, and Jesus indicated that he was the true Passover lamb whose coming death would save God's people from their sins. 
Jesus went on to speak of his own broken body and shed blood as a means through which God would establish a new covenant with his people. When Jesus spoke these words, not only he not only implied Israel's Passover had all along pointed to this very night, but when Jesus spoke about the cup of wine, he emphatically stated, this is my blood, which is the new covenant, to which the blood of bulls and goats of the Old Testament pointed to. These were absolutely remarkable words. Because, in effect, Jesus was declaring that the nation of Israel had come to a critical turning point in its history. And while not as significant in the grand drama of redemption, I hope we don't overlook the fact that this is a personal, powerful element here. Jesus was sharing his final meal with these men whom he had come to love so much. It was not only a turning point in redemptive history, but it's also a poignant moment in each of these men, men's lives. The very fact that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and that he had been betrayed and was about to be rest, arrested pointed to the fact that the climatic, climactic moment in Jesus' messianic mission was finally at hand. Judas's despicable action reflected what you would see in Psalm 41, verse 8. There it says, Even my own familiar friend, and whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You see, Jesus was the righteous sufferer who would be betrayed by a close friend. But Jesus was vindicated in the end. If you remember, Jesus, when he was in the home of Simon the leper, he allowed himself to be anointed by Mary with a very expensive perfume. And that was all in preparation for his death and burial. Jesus understood full well that his hour had come and there was no turning back. Jesus' entire life was one of humiliation and submission to the will of God. The depths of our Lord's humiliation was about to become evident to all. And while Jesus is going through this gut-wrenching agony, his disciples are nowhere to be seen. And so let's look again at Verses 41 and 42 of our text. It says, then he, came, then he came the third hour, the third time, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. These men had been with Jesus from the beginning. And now when he needs them the most, they're sound asleep. This is not only what Jesus had foretold, that in the hour of his trial he would be rejected, but this shows 
more than anything else, the disciples still didn't grasp the significance of what was happening. They were at a loss. And so Jesus commits himself again and again and again to the will of the Father. He repeatedly warns the disciples, be vigilant. He knows that he's about to be arrested. But he's worried about the welfare of the disciples. Instead of watching and preparing themselves, they're sound asleep. Soon they would be overwhelmed with fear and dread. And at long last, the Sanhedrin get their wish. Judas appears on the scene, leading an armed party to arrest Jesus. And this all sets in motion the events that would lead to the death sentence, the hour of the trial, the cup of wrath, that cup that Jesus prayed would pass from him. God's mysterious plan of redemption, decreed from before time itself, is now playing out before their very eyes. Everything Jesus had foretold is now coming to frightening certainty. In verse 42, Jesus issues that command, that warning, prepare yourselves for the inevitable. Rise, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. Guys, there's no turning back now. And so we read in verse 43, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so at this very moment that Jesus told his disciples it was time to go, guess who shows up on the scene? It's Judas. Remember, Judas slipped out during the meal, and he used that time to gather up enemies of Christ in order that they could take him and kill him. I think it's interesting, if you look there, Mark is very careful to point out that Judas was one of the twelve. The point of Mark using this phrase is to point out that Judas had been one of those who had been chosen by God, chosen by Christ. But Judas never loved Jesus Christ. In fact, John brings out that he was in it for the money. Remember, he was a treasurer of the group. He was skimming money, and you can see that in John 12, 6. And so here, now Judas arise, arrives accompanied by this crowd of military thugs. It was nighttime. So they would have been coming up the mountain with torches and lanterns. Must have been quite the sight to see all of these men coming up the mountain. You probably could see it from quite a distance. It was a contingency of soldiers and temple police who worked for the religious. And you can see that our text describes three groups of them, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And so the religious leaders are all against Christ. 
And they sent this large number of soldiers to go up the mountain and arrest our Lord. Now, it's obvious from verse 43 that these men were heavily armed. They were armed with swords and clubs, which were actually the weapons of the day. The, the clubs were probably more like a police baton, and the swords were part of the equipment carried by Roman soldiers. But when the Sanhedrin had a chance to seize Jesus, they actually went for it with all, all the gusto that they could met, uh, uh, come up with. And I, I really can't understand. I can't even imagine what kind of story they must have come up with to even get the Romans involved in this whole thing. But they did. And they were so convincing that they brought this huge group. Please turn to John chapter 18, verse 3. John chapter 18. This will give us a little bit more of an idea of this group that came up. John chapter 18, verse 3. It says, Then Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. That detachment of troops, in some versions actually says Roman cohort, the Greek word there is spara, which could have been as many as 600 soldiers. I don't know how you would fit 600 soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, but this was a big deal. This was a huge display. And all four Gospels put together, so you come up with the fact that they had torches and lanterns and swords and clubs. As a matter of fact, Matthew's Gospel says uh, it was with a great multitude with swords and clubs. So, humanly speaking, folks, this was massive overkill. But unless Jesus went quietly, they didn't have near enough. Remember, Judas was there when crowds tried to seize Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Verses 28 through 30. Luke chapter 4. We can see how Jesus handles crowds. Starting with verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. You see, Jesus didn't, didn't speak things that were pleasant to most. And then it says, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Look what it says next. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. 
you can bring a lot of people. It doesn't matter. All these men, they led him. He allowed that to happen. To show that he could be led right to the cliff. But they weren't going to do what they wanted. God was going to do what he wanted. And he walked right through the midst of them. So you can see that Jesus allows himself to be led only to show his power in the midst of their determination. I think it's interesting that John gives more detail as he says, talks about bringing lanterns and torches and weapons, that that would have been quite a display in this dark garden because it was after midnight. And so here comes this this mob carrying torches and lanterns. And who are they searching for? The light of the world. They're searching for the light of the world. Here they come with this array of human weapons And they're there to arrest who? Isaiah 9.6 calls him the Prince of Peace. Oh, and by the way, he's unarmed. All of this to arrest an unarmed man who had never harmed anyone or threatened anyone. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 53.9 it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had no violence nor any deceit in his mouth. Now again, if we look at our text in verses 44 and 45, we see now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. You see, evidently, Judas thought he could do this without anyone knowing that he was the betrayer. Otherwise, he would have just walked up and said, you know what, here here he is. He's the one. Arrest him. He thinks he's undercover. And he doesn't want to blow his cover. It's bad enough Judas betrays Jesus. But the way he does it is absolutely grotesque. Because he does it with a kiss. And by the way, that word kiss there in the Greek is the word katafleo. The word phileo is where we get our Philadelphia, brotherly love. Kata adds horsepower to it. It intensifies the word phileo. So it's kataphileo. Phileo is normally how we translate the word love. But it can also be translated as a kiss. And so you, you see with kataphileo, the Greek lexicon defines it like this, to kiss fervently, to kiss affectionately. 
Folks, this is no mere peck on the cheek. As one commentator says, Judas' kiss drips with horror, for it is a callous prostitution of one's humanity, uh, one of humanity's most sacred symbols, end quote. Judas was making a show of this. This wasn't tenderness. This was treason. This wasn't affection. This was defection. This wasn't a kiss of devotion. This was the kiss of death. And another thing mentioned in verse 45, it highlights, if you notice in your Bibles, the traitor's duplicitous deportment because not only does he kiss Jesus, he kisses him lavishly. And then in verse 45, he refers to Jesus as rabbi. Rabbi can also be translated master. And so you have this intensified cataphyleto form of the word love or kiss to a long embrace, a warm greeting. Judas is making a show of this, folks. But Jesus knows exactly what Judas is doing. He knows Judas's heart, and he knows that Satan is inside Judas. You can just imagine how sickening this would have been for, Judas, for Jesus to endure this kiss. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, I suppose it's a little like when people go to church and they're all expressive in worship, waving their arms, shouting amen. And then Monday morning, they betray Jesus by the way they live their lives. What must it be like for Jesus to endure that kind of so-called kiss of worship? If you would please turn to Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. Matthew chapter 15. Starting with verse 7. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There are illustrations throughout Scripture where there's this feigned appreciation and honor of someone. As a matter of fact, there's an incident in 2 Samuel 20 where a fake honor and fake respect and affection is shown in a kiss. It's seen as in Joab's kiss to Amasa. It's a chilling backstory here. 
but it's one that bears repeating. If you're familiar with Joab, he's the commander and the chief of David's army. He was also David's nephew. And unlike David's son Absalom, who was at war with his father, Joab, David's nephew, has intense loyalty to David, even to a fault. By the way, he participated in the plot of putting Uriah on the front lines, leading to Uriah's death, so that David could have his wife Bathsheba. But that's how loyal uh, to David Joab was. But although he indirectly murdered Uriah, Joab directly murdered Absalom. Absalom appointed a man, his name was Amasa, as captain of his army. And they crossed the Jordan to fight David and his father's men in the woods of Ephraim. And we see this in 2 Samuel. And this was a pivotal battle in the Old Testament because Absalom was defeated. He lost some 20,000 men. And not only that, even Absalom himself fled from those woods as uh, he did so, he actually caught his head in the branches of a terebinth tree. And so that he was suspended in midair. But he was still alive. And when that incident was reported to Joab, the commander of David's army against Absalom when it was reported to him that Absalom was hanging there in the tree, he was fuming. He was fuming at the man who reported this and didn't just kill him on the spot. Why then did you not strike him to the ground, it says? Joab wanted good reason. Why didn't you do this? But you see, David had told all the commanders and all the soldiers, kill anyone you want, but do not touch my son Absalom. Joab answered this man who reported it, I'm not going to waste time like you. And so in 2 Samuel 18, it says, he took three javelins and he stabbed Absalom in the heart while he was still alive. Now, of course, David got word of this. And soon after, when the kingdom was restored because Absalom had lost the battle and Absalom had now been killed, in an ironic turn of events, David takes away Joab from commanding the army, his army, and guess who he puts in? Amasa, Absalom's commander. He puts him in place of Joab. And so Joab is overcome by jealousy because Joab kills Amasa in a similar striking way as Judas betrayed Jesus. If you would please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. Here we read, starting in verse 9, 
Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out onto the ground, and he did not strike him, thus he died. He took him by the beard. He came up, put his hand alongside his face. Just, he killed him face to face. Are you in good health, my brother? And then he kissed him and betrayed him unto death. What Judas did was obviously far worse. But it was a betrayal by a kiss. The feigned respect and honor and love. As Judas kissed Jesus, it was like a metaphorical danger, uh, dagger being thrust in his side. And then he goes, you know, he doesn't say, are you in good health? He goes, Rabbi, Rabbi, or Master, Master. There we see a double title. And I, 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 I sometimes wish we would still use that because it, in the Jewish custom, by repeating a name, it, it it's a means of personal affection. And we see this throughout Scripture. We even see the Son of God as he's hanging on the cross talk to God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All these are expressions of communicating personal affection. That's the way Judas approached approached Jesus. Rabbi, Rabbi. You know, Jesus speaks of other betrayers in a similar way in Matthew 7. If you please turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verses 21 through 23. And here you see this same affection used, starting with verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or in other words, those who do the work of the Lord deceitfully for their own gain, whether it's for wealth or for, for honor. They go out and they go, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to cast out in your name. I'm going to do these wonders in your name all the time wanting something personally. They never knew Christ. And you know what? Here's the other thing. He never knew them. 
I'll tell you what, that's scary. It's scary. You know, I've met a lot of very famous pastors and preachers. But if I went up to them and say, hey, John MacArthur, great to see you, it would mean nothing because he doesn't know me. Does Jesus Christ know you? Or is it a one way where you know him? On that final day, all hypocrites will be exposed like Judas. All those who feigned love by saying, Lord, Lord, only to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. You see, Jesus will not reciprocate feigned love to that sort of hypocrite. Loyalty to Christ involves more than just loyalty to the person of Christ. It, it's loyalty to the kingdom of Christ, the bride of Christ, the people of Christ. Judas, he was loyal only to himself. He wasn't even thinking of the other disciples who were later tasked with the Great Commission. By the way, they just went on by themselves without him because he, he killed himself. They didn't need someone who was disloyal. It's, un, it's, it's not unlike where people pilfer the money from a ministry for their own gain. How many people, how many especially these name-it-and-claim-it health prosperity preachers, they end up taking money from, from people and saying it's all, for, it's all for the kingdom, it's all for God, when in fact they live lavishly. You know, none of the others really suspected treachery from Judas. They trusted him. He was part of the, the band of apostles. But you see, there was a problem. The more he stole, the easier it became. The harder his conscience got until he reached the point of no return. And I think that's a lesson for us today, that if you just keep going without repenting of your sin, if you keep going in your sin, and it just gets easier and easier to where it's very hard to turn away from that. The issue with Judas was one of pride and dis disloyalty. And you just think of how often has Judas's high treason been repeated in the church of Jesus Christ, where people have their own agenda, they are looking for power, or they're hungry for money or prestige, and they end up being the ones who are disloyal. It saddens me and even scares me, folks that the chance 
in five to ten years from now that every single person that is in here in this worship service this morning will be in this worship service in five to ten years. The chances are practically zip. There are chance, there's a chance that you will live to the end of your life and see a handful of people loyal to Christ. That's just a reality of the visible church. That happens. And we don't get critical. We speak in. We nurture, we nurture and we nourish with the Word. We don't start looking at people and go, well, they might be, they might be. No. In some ways, we're like the apostles. Some ways, we're naive of all that. Because we know that if they're here, it's by the hand of God and God alone. This isn't to discourage you. But this should cause you to listen to the Apostle Paul. If you please turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Starting with verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Even as Judas entered eternal darkness prepared before him. That reality is a reality for everyone who enters into a confessional covenant community. Hebrews 29 warns the covenant, uh, uh, the confessional covenant community. Those who profess Christ who worship Christ on the Lord's day. Here's what it says, Hebrews 10.29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. 
When we talk about our salvation, when we talk about what Christ has done for us, it should never be a common thing. It should always strike our hearts with absolutely amazement. Why? Why would he do that for a wretch like me? Why would he give his life so that when we come to him, we don't insult the spirit of grace going, well, you know what? He died for me. I'm saved. It doesn't matter. Folks, it matters. It matters. And Judas is a stark warning for us to guard our hearts from disloyalty. If you look at verse 44, where it says, led him safely, that doesn't mean to lead him with, with, without harm. It's actually the, the Greek word asphalos. And it means to be taken in such a way to prevent him from escaping. To assuredly take him, grab him. And verse 46 says they did just that. They led him, or they laid hands on him and took him. That means they grabbed him, manhandled him, seized him. They were having a dominant display of strength and force. As soon as Judas betrayed Christ, the soldiers arrested him. This God, Messiah, Savior, and King of Kings. He was allowing these evil, sinful, arrogant men to put their dirty, filthy hands on him and arrest him. Why did he let that happen? It certainly wasn't due to the fact that he can't get away. He has the power to drop everyone in the crowd dead if he wants. As a matter of fact, in John 18, 6, after they asked who he was, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He says, I am, which actually was saying that he's declaring his glory. And what happened is they fell backwards and fell to the ground. So why did he do it? He did it so that we might live. Look at verse 47. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. All four Gospels contain this. Mark says one of those who stood by uh, drew his sword. He actually swung his sword and cut off the man's ear. And there's some people that say, well, it just sliced the ear. But the word that's used indicates complete separation. Mark doesn't tell us who it was or the man's name. John 18.10 informs us that it was Peter who drew his sword. And he cut off a man's ear and the man was named Malchus. Obviously, John knew this man by name. John and Luke also inform us that it was his right ear. 
J. Vernon McGee says Peter was a great fisherman but a lousy swordsman. But you have to remember, Peter's relaying this story to Mark, even though Mark may have been in the shadows. And so we can assume that this part of the story is coming directly from Peter, and he doesn't want to look like a hero in any way. As a matter of fact, what happens next is anything but heroic. The truth is this action had the potential of destroying the whole program of God. What Peter is actually doing is contrary to the whole program of God, which Jesus had specifically laid out. And so this is a serious moment. Peter's ready to go to war to stop Christ from going to the cross. This could have gotten out of hand real fast, folks. If it wasn't for Christ, not allowing that. And so Luke 22.51 says that Jesus touched his ear and healed him. That word touch is the word hapto, which means he found it and he healed the man's ear. He put it back on his head as if it had never been taken off. And then he says that he healed it's the Greek word leoomai. This is the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. By his wounds or stripes, we are healed. You see, Jesus is in the business of healing. He's in the, in the business of forgiving. Even when we have done foolish things, that's amazing grace, folks. John Calvin said, I wonder how many times we have actually threatened to thwart the will of God because of our own fleshly response. End quote. It's a good reminder that we all need to think thoroughly about the will of God before we act or speak. We must carefully make sure we're standing on right things before we take a stand. Because it's quite possible that we stand for, for Christ in the right thing, but do the wrong thing. We say the wrong thing. We do or say something that has no benefit, even though it may be true. We need to be careful about that. And so continuing with verses 48 and 49, it says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Here Jesus decides to challenge them in the thinking that's involved. He does a little bit of teaching here. They were coming to arrest him as if he's a criminal. And he wants to show their lunacy. They're approaching him as if he's a fugitive on the run. Matthew's gospel gives us a little 
a little better idea of this, if you'd please turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verses 52 through 56. Matthew chapter 26, starting with verse 52. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You know how many are in a legion? It's 6,000. So Jesus is saying, you know what? I could have 72,000 angels. All he had to do is call them. If he wanted to, he could do that. Actually, he could have called all the angels if he wanted to. The Apostle John says in Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures the el and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power rich and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, Jesus had already shown them with two words, I am. He didn't need to say anything else. And so he's speaking hyperbole to make a point to Peter. Peter, put away, put away that thing. That's not what we're here for. He let Peter know that he was fully in charge. He let Peter and all the others know that everything that was happening was happening to the will of God. It was unfolding exactly as God had revealed it in his word. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus is never a victim, not even for a split second, not for a millisecond of his life or, or their uh, before or after his earthly life, he has never, ever, ever been a victim. Voluntarily to the cross. Even though he was led there by people who were desperately wicked. Jesus was sinlessly using the sinfulness of people to do evil so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And so now Jesus informs the group that he really didn't need to have the swords and the clubs. He asked them, do you come to me like a robber? I mean, 
I was in the temple teaching every day. You didn't seize me there. You cowards. You didn't seize me there because you were afraid of the people. And you didn't dare do it then. Jesus informs them in verse 49 that the reason that this was taking place was to fulfill Scripture. This is the only reason that they are putting their evil, sinful hands on him. In verse 50 of our text, it says, Then all forsaked him and fled. We don't often think about this, but I think there's a corollary here to Jesus protecting his disciples. He was able to use their fear to protect them. I mean, they, when they come to, came to him, it says it's Jesus of Nazareth that we want. He says, I am he. In other words, okay, you're after me. Let these guys go. And in some ways, he's got them out of the way. He used their own fear and their littleness of faith to get them out of harm's way. On the other hand, this was the first stage of the process that was going to turn these men into mighty instruments used in the hand of God for furthering the kingdom of God. It was by these men, as Ephesians 2.20 says, having built, been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. And even though it was a tumultuous night, a night of agony for those 11 men, this agony would extend into the next two days and nights, all until the morning of the resurrection. And I would say that they probably had three hours of sleep. It was probably those three little naps they took in the garden. And they, after they slept, they fled. But I want to point out something in verses 51 and 52. Here we see, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Folks, this is one of the oddest things recorded in all of the gospel accounts. Grammatically, from the text, we see that Mark doesn't stress the identity of the young man. He doesn't specifically identify him. And so, 
we're not really sure who this is. I mean, there's a lot of guesses, but the, sim the story simply doesn't say. The, the truth is, we don't know. What we do know is that there was a young man who was following Christ and his disciples, and he was wearing nothing but a linen robe, which probably means he came from a wealthy family. He didn't initially run away with the disciples, but apparently some soldier seized him and grabbed hold of him in his linen robe, pulled away, and the man ran away naked. He ran down the mountain naked in order to, to escape. It shows us how terrified these followers of Christ were. Any courage they thought they had, any commitment they thought they had, evaporated in the moment of persecution and trial. And they all fled in desperation, even to the point of fleeing naked. And so why is this crucial? Because when it says all forsook him, they didn't just take off running. Some of them took off running in such a manner is they were willing to leave their clothes. Now, the only person that I can think of in Scripture who was doing this was a man named Joseph. He was with Potiphar's wife. You remember the story in, in Genesis. Potiphar's wife wanted David. She set up a scenario in order to entrap him. She makes sure all the servants are out of the house, and it's just the two of them. David has this colorful coat that was given to him by his dad. She lays hold of him, and he was more leaving to leave, willing to leave naked in holiness and righteousness and innocence than to be an accomplice to or act in a sin against God or his master, Potiphar. In Mark, this young man was willing to flee with nothing on his body because it was more important to be absent than to be present. He was afraid and sharing in the same judgment Jesus was going to before the Romans. And I think that's exactly Mark's point in including this whole shameful episode of his nakedness. Revelation 3.17, it tells us that apart from Christ, we are all wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the reality this morning. Apart from Christ, we are all naked and shameful before God. And his word tells us in Hebrews 4.13 that we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We have scattered in the darkness of night in shameful nakedness from God. I want you to hear this. What is the remedy? What is the remedy? The remedy is the gospel. That's the whole point, and that's why Mark includes 
verses 51 and 52, because he understands that spiritually speaking, it is, uh, it's greater than his physical nakedness that night. It's his spiritual nakedness that he needed Christ. He needed Christ to be judged in his place so that he wouldn't be judged. He needed Christ's righteousness to cover his nakedness. And he realized that we all must understand that if we stand on our own without Christ, without His righteousness, we are all condemned. But praise God for the remedy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Gospel of Mark. This is a heavy portion of Scripture because we see ourselves in the story even as it builds to the climax of Jesus' arrest. We can see ourselves in this whole thing. Sometimes we see ourselves in the soldiers. Other times we see ourselves in Judas. Other times we see ourselves in the apostles. But Lord, no matter who we find connection with in this text, we realize that if it weren't for your grace, if it weren't for your sovereignty in choosing us, we would be only sheep that were scattered and gone astray, and we would never make it back. And so we thank you through faith and repentance that we can have you as our Savior and know you as our Savior and that you know us. Through faith and repentance, we can know you as Lord and you know us as your children. You have promised us because your Son was left all alone in our place that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You have come to die for us and give us eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would remove all anxieties from our life, remove all the fear of men, and place within our hearts the boldness of Christ to trust in the power of the gospel to trust in the power of Christ to build his church in spite of a hostile society. This is what our great hope is as we look to the consummation of your eternal kingdom. Until that day, help us to build your kingdom with boldness. Help us to build your kingdom through the power of Christ. And we pray for your glory and our good, that all these things would come to pass according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' most precious and glorious name. Amen.